Again, a very pleasant good morning to each and every one. What a terrific, terrific opportunity we have this morning to come together as we have already. In light of Brother Roger's announcement, on behalf of my family, also let us say in many ways what a wonderful year it's been for us. We're still so excited and appreciative and thankful for the good brethren here, the faithfulness that you so powerfully exhibit, and the privilege that's ours to worship with you, come together from time to time, enjoy the fellowship of good Christian brothers and sisters. We too look forward to continuing to work with you for a long time to come. For as we do that, maybe our continuation and unity will only grow stronger and deeper day by day. As we study this morning the golden text of the Bible, I've listed on the wall to my left, to your right, the reference to that, namely in the 16th, cha 16th verse of John the third chapter. It's an interesting text in so many different ways, and by way of introduction, I'd ask you to think about it with me from the familiarity that it so powerfully represents. Perhaps if we were to take a poll amongst ourselves or even of others of our favorite verses, our favorite chapters perhaps in the Bible, almost certainly we could guess what some of those references might be. How many have laid great hope and confirmation on the 23rd Psalm? The character of the fact that God is my shepherd and I shall not want. Quite often in times of great difficulty and stress, even the death of a loved one, we fall back on the promise and power of that text. Perhaps yours is John 14, verse 6, that proclaims where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. For others, perhaps the opening chapter of Paul's Roman epistle contains so many texts and thoughts that race to the very heart of our being. When Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Well, among the 31,102 verses in the King James Version of the Bible, perhaps I haven't mentioned the one that's your favorite, but no doubt for many of those to whom we might address that question, John 3 verse 16 would arise in the discussion. For it is a verse that encapsulates so much of what the Bible has to say. In fact, as we turn our attention to that text this morning, might I suggest that even though we may be familiar with it, and even though it may often have been a matter to rest amazingly on our mind, yet if we will relook at it again, consider it from perhaps a powerful and analytical and thorough way, we may even appreciate it more thoroughly, more deeply, and perhaps it'll be an even better aspect of our thinking and of our way of life from here onward. And so with that in mind, I would invite you to turn with me again then to the 16th verse of John chapter 3. It has already been read in our attention this morning. And as that was read, only the 16th verse was read in our hearing. We've often been led to appreciate that the larger context can often shed a tremendous amount of light and a thorough amount of added meaning to the things of what is said in a given verse. We will not begin back in verse 1 of that chapter, but may I suggest if I might introduce us or help us recollect briefly what's there, it will be helpful for us to remember that. In the opening verse of this chapter, a gentleman named Nicodemus came to speak with Jesus, and he came by night. Oh, what we learn about Nicodemus, and we appreciate the fact that he's called a ruler of the Jews. From John the 7th chapter, verses 50 and 51, we learn this man was apparently a member of the Sanhedrin court. He had great responsibility given to him to overrule the nature of the Jewish nation. 
as he sought to carry out that responsibility and that duty. It would seem that he was more than just a mere passing of interest in terms of Jesus' message. He listened with intent, came to appreciate the greatness and majestic power of it. Later, do we not remember in the 19th chapter of John, it was this very one who in fact apparently of his own wealth helped in the burial of the body of the Savior. Nicodemus in many ways was an impressive man. As we encounter him first of all here in John the third chapter, we notice that he came to Jesus by night. And he complimented him in a rather high fashion when he said, Rabbi, we know thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do the miracles that thou doest except God be with him. He immediately has already been captivated by the things he's seen Jesus do, by the teachings he's heard him say. And here, still at this point, perhaps just a bit fearful of what would befall him if he did make a public confirmation of Christ, he came by night under cover of darkness, and yet Jesus confronted him with the amazing necessity of rebirth. Jesus said in verse 3, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Nicodemus at that point was still a bit perplexed and confused. And in verse 5, Jesus answered his next question about how can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus again, without delay, again began by saying, Verily, verily. In essence, truly, truly, Nicodemus, I'm telling you, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Nicodemus was told powerfully about the necessity of a new birth. One cannot just be the same old person of sin. One must be converted from the inside out, born again. And only then can he enter into the kingdom of God. In the verses that follow that, Jesus confronted Nicodemus with some amazing things. First, challenging him, how can you be a ruler of the Jews and not know these things? Doesn't that help us appreciate sometimes our own failures when we are not as thoroughly familiar with aspects of the Scriptures as we ought to be? And yet Nicodemus was patiently taught by the Savior himself. When we arrive at verse number 14, Jesus makes note of a text no doubt very familiar to Nicodemus from the Old Testament. For you and me, we find it in the 21st chapter of Numbers. The children of Israel, by that point, had left the bondage of Egypt. They had wandered in the wilderness for quite some time. God had blessed them daily with manna and with, of course, the quail. But we find here the interesting fact that they were grumbling and complaining it was such that they were unsatisfied with their current lot, for they desired more than this manna. They, in fact, from the mouth of their own words, said, We loathe this light bread. They wanted more substantive bread. They wanted something different. They just couldn't be pleased, couldn't be satisfied. Due to their complaining and their grumbling, God allowed fiery serpents to come in their midst, and it bit them, and many of them died. What a lesson there, perhaps, for a different time in a different place about the power of grumbling and complaining. But as God, in fact, had allowed these fiery serpents to come among them, they pleaded with Moses to aid them in some fashion and way. And God directed Moses to you erect this brazen serpent on a pole in the midst and all who look upon it, they'll not die from the snake bite. 
we learn that on that occasion, verse 14 here in the New Testament, Jesus makes reference to that same event. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. When that brazen serpent was lifted up on that pole there amongst the children of Israel, and those who had been bitten by the fiery serpents looked upon it, they did not die from the bite of the snake. One might inquire, what possibly does looking at a brazen serpent have to do with healing snake bite? On the surface of it, nothing. But on the other hand, it did so because God said it would. Every aspect of the promise of God was fulfilled that when we did what He said for the people of Israel, they were healed of that snake bite. But notice the analogy here. Even so, Jesus said, the Son of Man must be lifted up and all who will look upon Him and follow obediently the rule of life that He has set forth, they shall not die of sin, but rather shall have eternal life. What a beautiful analogy. Just as those that looked on the brazen serpent had physical life, did not die from the snake bite, those that look upon the Savior, following Him and doing that which He commands, they shall not die of sin, but rather shall have everlasting life. Those two verses alone have spoken volumes, but they lead us to that grand text of verse 16, that text that sometimes is called the golden text of the Bible. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Isn't it a fascinating thing to reflect more carefully and more thoroughly on the power of that text? As I notice for us on the screen again at my left, considering this introductory statement again, would you notice with me some of the features to be seen in it? Amazingly, the lifting up of the Son of Man. Did Jesus know that He would one day be crucified? This was now many years, I say many, at least a couple it would seem prior to His crucifixion. And yet the Lord knew full well what His lot would be. When Jesus was born in that manger in Bethlehem, placed there after He was born of Mary and Joseph, we remember that as Mary gave birth to Him, He knew all well once He came of age that His purpose was to do the will of God, John six thirty eight. John 4, verse 34, to claim my meat is to do the will of Him that sent me and to finish His work. Jesus knew that the cross was in His future. He knew there was coming a time when He would give His life for the character of humanity's sin. Jesus told Nicodemus, when the Son of Man's lifted up, He knew that just as that brazen serpent was lifted up in the wilderness and all Israel was to look upon it, so too the Son of Man would be lifted up and He would draw all men unto Himself. Didn't He make those same words in the twelfth chapter of this same book? Verse 32, He said, that when I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto Me. Oh, how everyone needs to look on the Savior. Isn't it significant that He draws all? That doesn't mean that all will choose to come. There are some who remain stubbornly, offense, stubbornly offensive in that they refuse to accept the gracious gift of the Savior. They prefer to plod their own course and thus end in doom's way of sin. When all the while the Savior beckons them, pleads with them to come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Isn't it sad that the foolishness to be seen in humanity is that so many have rejected this call? 
Let's look more carefully now at verse number 16. In looking at some of the features of it, may I suggest that we look at them word by word and attempt to lay the emphasis upon the wording that the Savior did when he made this statement to Nicodemus so many centuries ago. For. The word for is a word that's called a conjunction in the English language. It ties the element that follows to the element that precedes it. Jesus had just said in verses 14 and 15 that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You and I might ask, Lord, how can that be? That those who believe in him would have everlasting life and would not perish. Jesus, in essence, says, for this is the way that that will happen. Here's the explanation of it. Here are the specifics, the details, if you will, for God. Second word in that verse makes reference to the almighty God of creation, the one who is the overruling and sovereign guide over all things, God. He's the God of the Old Testament. We remember that in Genesis 1 verse 1, the opening announcement of the Bible refers to him, in the beginning, God. You and I, as we seek to appreciate him, he is the central figure and theme of the entirety of the, all of the word of God. It speaks of his character and love for the human family and the means by which he providentially brings about his will for God. As you and I consider that, that word in the sentence is a noun. It's the subject of that opening clause of John 3.16, for God. Notice that the next word to be seen refers to the word soul. A little two-letter word. As we think about the character of God, many things might be noted about Him that leads us to the next statement. God is indeed a God of love. 1 John 4a, God is love. But he's also a God of mercy, as we learn in the Psalms. Specifically, the reference to be noted there is Psalm 145, verse 8. He's great in mercy. In addition to that, Isaiah 45, 21 tells us that this great God whom we know and appreciate is also a tremendous God of service and a God who is of great grace and justice. That God, what did he do? We understand in an English sentence the subject needs a verb. The verb tells us the action, what it is that the subject does. In this particular sentence, there's an adverb in between them, the word soul. The word soul is an adverb of intensity, magnitude. It will inform for us the greatness of what is accomplished in the action of the verb, soul. In fact, in light of that point, May we go ahead and note the verb and then place the two together. What is it that the subject did? He loved. For God so loved. It is not that God sat passively by and accomplished nothing. It's not that he looked at a distance and in fact let man do his own way and his own thing. God so loved. There's that word agapao. Agape as we often say it. It indicates a selfless giving kind of love in which that one has the highest welfare in eye for the object. God so loved. That consideration and character of the word love indicates that it is the central word in New Testament Christianity. It's employed over 350 times in the 27 New Testament books. Christianity is a religion of love.
love that emanates from the Father, love that emanates through the Son, love that emanates one with another as brotherly love is exhibited, 2 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. To say all that is to say that this agapao is mirrored and patterned after the love that God shed forth to us. We are not its definition. God is. God so loved. Notice in the English sentence, though it goes onward, the subject is God, the verb is love. Who or what did God love? What's the direct object? God so loved the world. Notice that the word the is just a definite a definite adjective. But consider the word world. What's that refer to? You and I may often employ that word with respect to this planet upon which we live. This planet that's made of rocks and various other things of inanimate character. But what is the usage of the word here? That word is the translation of the Greek word cosmos. We call it cosmos. And it has to do with those human inhabitants. God so loved you and me. He loved us as the prime fixtures of His creation. Oh, it's true that God had interest in us and made these rocks and trees and mountains. But the thrust of this verse are human beings. God loved you and He loved me. Those who had turned their back on Him in sin, back as far as when they nailed His Son to a cross. Those in the days of Paul who had little interest in Him, God still loved them. God so loved the world. In continuation through that verse, might we notice that the greatness of God's love, we're already gaining a hint of it as we recollect the state in which humanity found itself. Ezekiel 18 verse 20 had reminded us the soul that sins, it shall die. The Son shall not bear the iniquity of the Father. Neither shall the Father bear the iniquity of the Son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon Him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon Him. Jesus Christ, you see, came into this world of sinners. He didn't come into a world of pristine, noble, righteous, godly people who appreciated the God of heaven. They'd illustrated time and again that they were adverse to the teachings of God. Their Old Testament figures had put to death the prophets. Jesus said so in Matthew 23. Adam and Eve had chosen to willfully disobey Him in Genesis 3. All the while, Christ entered this world because God loved them. And He still loves you and me. If ever there was a time we have a tendency to feel low in self-esteem, we should read and reread the opening statements of John chapter 3. For God loved you and He loved me enough to send His Son for us. But that isn't all. For notice with me the statements that are also to be seen herein. As God's love is shown, we've gotten to the direct object. Let's go on from there. For God so loved the world that... Had the verse merely stopped with God so loved the world, that alone would have been a majestic statement, full of power and might. But there's a word that. The word that sometimes is a relative pronoun. Sometimes it forms the role of an adjective, and such, or rather a conjunction, and such is the case here. It is explanatory in force. It explains the character of how God so loved. What did He do? In what manner did He illustrate or demonstrate that love? That. Notice the next word. He. That's a pronoun that refers back to God. For God so loved the world that He. This is not what the world did. 
It's what God did that he gave. God gave something. He voluntarily and willfully divested some matter related to himself and gave it freely in terms of this gift. Might we think interestingly and powerfully about what it is that he gave. And in doing so, may I remind you, though it's not obvious in the English, of what the tense in the Greek is. Notice with me, he gave. That word gave, we shall see, is in the aorist tense. And as you can see on the screen, it was a singular event. That is to say, it points to a definitive event that took place at one moment in time. God gave something at one time. I wonder what it was. Let's continue onward. That he gave his only begotten son. Now we remember that, of course, Christ came into the world, born there in Bethlehem of Judea. And certainly in that sense, he gave. He allowed him to come. He sent him. He dispatched him from heaven. But that's not in view of John on this moment, nor is it in view of Christ as he speaks of it. Again, that he gave his only begotten son. God gave a part of himself. There was nothing that God created and then sent to play this role. He gave something that was already in existence. His part of himself, the second member of the Godhead, he sent himself, if you will, to earth. In the sense that it was his only begotten son, May we notice that the scriptures inform for us that that son was such an important being in the heavenly realm. For after all, in Colossians 1, it was through him that all things were made. It was through him that the creation took place. And yet, God gave him. You see, why didn't God give something else? Why didn't God send an angel? Why didn't God send Gabriel or Michael, one of the archangels? They were obviously great in position and power. They weren't good enough. Do you ever think you or I are unworthy in God's sight? Does it ever seem that perhaps God has forgotten about us? Never all thoughts ought to cross our mind. Angels weren't good enough to sing. They could not satisfy the need for a sacrifice for humanity's sins, but the Son could. God sent the Son. God sent His only begotten Son for the world. Remember, it, the world was the direct object. God sent this for those who didn't deserve it, those that were lost in sin. But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. It then ought to be a thought for us to remember that as this gift was given, what was its purpose? So far we've learned that in the magnitude of God's love, He sent His Son, what was accomplished thereby. The verse goes onward. Let us look at some more of what it illustrates. We encounter the word that again. We've seen it before as it played the role of a conjunction, linking that which preceded to that which followed. Here we notice it does the same. Again, explanatory in force. That. We've seen then that God gave His Son. Here's the explanation for the purpose gained by it. That whosoever. That's one of those words that perhaps you and I do not use frequently in modern 21st century English. But might we notice that we do use who quite a bit. 
Whosoever simply means that it's unlimited in terms of those who may be benefited by the offer of God's love. Whosoever. The Old Testament law of Moses had been directed to the children of Israel through Abraham. The Jews were the only recipients of it, those of the Hebrew race. The Gentiles, if you will, served under a different law, but they were not subject to the law of Moses. When we come to the New Testament, what is the law in place? Are all subject to it, or does God's great benefit and gift only extend to a certain selected few? I might suggest that there is considerable false doctrine about the nature of that whosoever. There are some, and perhaps you've heard, that as John Calvin taught it in the latter part of the 15th and 16th centuries, there the thought was that there's a selected few that God will save. No one else has any chance. If you're in that number, you're blessed, and nothing you can do will cause you to be lost. But if you're not in that number, there's nothing you can possibly do to be in that number. Absolute nonsense. Christ said, and this is Jesus speaking to whosoever, no one by their very nature of birth is outside the character of the extent of God's love. Man or woman, boy or girl, any nation on earth has the opportunity to look upon the Christ as lifted up just as all in Israel could look upon that lifted brass serpent. It's not that only the men could be saved from snake bite, or only the women, or only those that were young. Anybody bitten by snake could look upon that serpent, and they would not die. Anybody, whosoever, can look upon the greatness of the lifting up of the sun and experience the grandness of the benefit thereof. Isn't it interesting that nearly in the last passage of the Bible, whosoever will, let him come and drink freely of the water of life. Revelation twenty two seventeen. Thankfully, you and I can be a part of that whosoever. For notice, that whosoever is a subject of this subordinate clause. What's the verb of that subordinate clause? Whosoever? Well, notice in a moment, it is should not perish. But there is a statement of definition of who is it that will not perish. Is it whosoever in the sense that nobody will perish? No, for notice there's an adjective that defines this whosoever. This adjective is in the form of a participle believeth in him. Whosoever believeth in him. What about this believeth? What are the thrust is there of that word? We understand that quite often the word believe occurs in the New Testament in some form. The nature and power and necessity of it is easily seen. Didn't our Savior state on a different occasion that except ye believe in me, you shall die in your sins? John 8, 24. Indeed, he did. The belief in the Master, the belief in the Savior, the realization that he is who he said he was must be a part of our understanding mentally, but that isn't enough. For how does the New Testament describe belief? Is it a belief that ends at mental ascent? Or is it a belief that necessarily manifests itself in doing that which has been commanded by the one in whom one believes? It is invariably the latter. For might we notice in every instance in the book of Acts, as an individual was stated to be saved, what had preceded that salvation in every instance? 
was it mental belief or assent? For if it were, why did Peter command them to repent and be baptized in Acts 2.38? It's obvious they had already believed, for it says that they were pricked in their heart, Acts 2.37. Clearly, the belief to be discussed and needed there must have imitated and led to something more than that. In the next chapter, if mental understanding was enough, why on Solomon's porch did Peter again stay to repent and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. Obviously their sins hadn't been blotted out, though they'd believed. There was something else needed. And in Acts 8, verse 12, when Philip preached in Samaria, obviously they'd already given great attention to that which he said, so much so that they had begun to give up their understanding of and faithfulness in those sorcerous matters. But in verse 12, what does it say? Then when they had believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God, they were baptized, both men and women. Belief went together with this act that culminated that belief. We could list many more examples. But notice again, we're defining whosoever. Whosoever believeth in him. What's the verb of that subordinate clause? That is to say, if whosoever is the subject, what is whosoever doing? What is the state in which whosoever is? Thankfully, we're ready to see the following. Whosoever believeth in him. We're ready for the next screen. Is such that this whosoever does not perish. This whosoever is such that they're exempt from that which is of perishment. What does the word perish mean? What is the idea behind it? Destruction. Whosoever believeth in him should not be destroyed, should not be ruined, should not be cast asunder. Remember that those in Numbers 21, those that had been bitten by snake, they died if they refused to look on the brass pole. They refused to if they refused to look upon that, their life was removed, taken from them. Here, Jesus says, Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. I might note that the word that appears in verse 15 is the same word in Greek that appears in verse 16. In one place, it's translated eternal. In the other, it's translated everlasting. But they are exactly the same word. You and I, as a result of sin, found ourselves in position where we were doomed. Absolutely ruined in the sight of eternity because hell is the eternal repository for those that are separated from God by sin. But yet God raised up, not a brass serpent on a pole, but the Son. And those that look upon the Son, trusting and believing in that which He has taught, can find themselves exempt from that sentence of death. Shed not perish. But not only not perish, have everlasting life. Jesus would state later in this same book, I am the resurrection and the life. He is the one that offers that life. And He says to those that believe upon Him, follow Him, obey Him that they too can have that everlasting eternal life. This text has encapsulated so many features of the entirety of the Bible and has done so, so briefly. But yet, oh, how wonderfully. 
It's no wonder you and I would do well to commit a verse like this one to memory. Often being able to reflect on the thrust of it, the force behind it. For indeed, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God makes no promise anywhere of everlasting life for those who do not believe on his Son. There may be many in the world who'd like to think that. They may like to think that they, for instance, can take or leave Jesus and still have opportunity for eternal life. But the Lord nowhere ever promised it. They are, in fact, basing all of their hopes on something that doesn't exist. Isn't that a tragedy? Isn't that etern an eternal tragedy? For you and I can place our hope in the Son, believe upon Him, follow His commandments, and in so doing, rest assured that the same thing here stated by Christ will be the grand hope and glory and realization of us. Have you looked then on the risen Savior this morning, just as they in Israel looked upon the nature of that risen brass serpent? Could we pause for a moment and state the foolishness of those in Israel who refused to look upon that raised serpent? Put yourself in a position like that. If you'd been bitten by one of those fiery serpents, and information had been brought that there's been a serpent raised up by Moses, and all who look upon it, we're told, will be healed. Wouldn't it not have been rather unwise and foolish to say, well, I know that won't do any good. I'm just not going to do it. You'd have died in a very few days or hours. Here, God, in essence, says figuratively the same. Those that will not look on the sun, those who won't open the blessed pages of the Word and bring the thought of what is said into their lives, they may think they're wise. God says, I'm telling you, they're foolish. This morning, in which state might you or I be? Have you looked on the Son? Have you, in fact, been buried with Him in baptism, Colossians 2.12? Have you been raised to walk in newness of life, Romans 6, verses 3 and 4? If you do, then you were joined with the Savior. You became a member of His body. You began your walk with Him toward eternal life in heaven. If you're still continuing faithfully upon that walk, Blessed be you, and may you continue throughout life in that way you've begun. But on the other hand, if you have strayed away from it, or if you've never begun that walk, let today be the day you come back to that straight and narrow pathway that leads to life, or in fact begin it anew, begin it for the first time if that's the need in your life. Again, believe upon Him, repent of your sins, confess His sweet name as Savior and Master, and not only a Son of God, but then follow that by placing confidence in what he said. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Be immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins. If we could help you do that today, it'd be our privilege. We would certainly enjoy to see you introduced into the kingdom. Brother Harold has chosen him of encouragement, and if we could be of assistance or aid to you, we'd certainly be more than happy to do that even now, while together we stand and while we sing.